0: everybody, welcome to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And me? Well, I'm Jim. <laughs> well, hey Jim. We want to thank you guys for coming back again. We had kind of a bye week last week. Uh, yeah. I was in the studio with my band all weekend recording our new LP, which is coming along gangbusters. Uh, I- I'm having a whole lot of fun. Our producer's amazing. He makes me sound like I actually know what I'm doing, which is fantastic. <laughs>
1: Jim, you were on vacation. I was on vacation, yeah. I took a, 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 I'm not going to say deserved vacation, but needed vacation nonetheless. I had some PTO coming up from work. My company was involved with a merger a couple months ago, and I had some time I have to take before the end of the year. And as loath as I was to take a vacation, uh, I decided it was time. And so right around the time that uh, they were reminding us we needed to take our vacation. There were a couple concerts coming up in New Orleans that I just had to get to, and that was around June that we scheduled that. Um, So it wound up being really, really great. Went to New Orleans uh, for a good solid week and just had a fantastic time. Actually thought about canceling um, only because... um, You know, from the time that we booked the trip, uh, and the time that it actually was going to be going on, New Orleans became kind of a massive hotspot for Delta, uh, which was a pain in the ass, but the thing is, um, you know, it's been a a bucket list item of mine for a long time to see Better Than Ezra at home in New Orleans at the House of Blues, a legendary venue down there in in the Big Easy. And so, uh, you know, we made the decision that we were going to go, even though a lot of people were canceling. And it wound up being an absolutely fantastic week. We were very careful, we wore masks everywhere, especially during the show, sanitized like crazy, and just tried to be very careful with the distancing. It wasn't always possible, but, um, yeah, New Orleans. uh, I've been trying to get down there since at least before Katrina, and I really wish I'd gone sooner. That is an absolutely fucking fantastic, world-class, amazing, historic, beautiful, charming... Incredible vibe of a town. It's just, it's a great place. And if you've ever thought about going, I highly recommend. Don't be an this, don't be an idiot like me and go in fucking August. Um, I didn't have much of a choice <laughs> for when to go because that's when the concerts that I was attending were, were being put on. Uh, and if and when I ever do go back, it, it, it'll definitely be sometime over the winter. But uh, definitely go to New Orleans. It's a magical place. It's a magical place. And uh, and I definitely am going to plan to go back sometime very soon.
0: See, and that's awesome, because that's, that's one of my bucket list places, and, and, and probably for a lot of the same reason that you would agree, Yeah, uh, I am a huge, huge, huge foodie. I mean, I shouldn't be. My doctor tells me I shouldn't be, mm-hmm. but nor, there's something about uh, Creole and Cajun food that just, it's warm, it's inviting, and it just makes me want to devour mad quantities of it.
1: Get in my belly! Yeah, and I've had Cajun food. I I actually went to a couple of crawfish boils, actually threw a crawfish boil once, and I love stuff like catfish and, and, you know, all the traditional Cajun dishes, but I really wanted to eat some of that stuff in in its native uh, area, and I didn't eat some of that stuff. I ate all of that fucking stuff. You know, I'm actually working with a uh, a weight loss clinic because I'm getting up there in years and my metabolism isn't really getting any faster. And I've got about 50 pounds I need to lose before I can really feel healthy and comfortable in my own skin, to say nothing of like, you know, I, I don't place a whole lot of stock in the BMI charts, because that's, you know, that shit's put on by insurance companies who, by their definitions, Elijah Wood is clinically and morbidly obese. Stupid fat, But whatever. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't quite set Stupid myself back to square one habits. with the weight loss, but uh, I'm going to have to probably uh, go in there hat in hand with a mea culpa, because... You know, I I had the jambalaya and the gumbo and the etouffee and the red beans and rice and the shrimp and grits and the beignets and the alligator and the po'boys and all the things, and every single all thing I things. ate was more delicious than the last thing I ate. And I have never I've never been in a, in, a, in a town with more consistent or ubiquitous food. It was fucking everywhere, and every single thing I ate was absolutely out of this world. Not even Vegas can match it, and and that's really saying something because that town's got restaurants up the proverbial puckered fucking dirt star shoot. Peacemaker. It's a slang term for a butthole? Think there's any connection? No. No. It has nothing on New Orleans. (laughs) New Orleans is, uh, uh, I'm I'm absolutely enamored with the place. The, The history, we took a ghost tour, we took a bus tour through some of the historic neighborhoods, through the French Quarter, through the Garden District, ate all the food, you know, just absolutely blew my socks off every single thing we did. And I also got completely falling down shit face drunk for the first time in about 20 years. The last time I can remember getting (laughs) drunk in public was on my 27th birthday when I had a whole bunch of friends who said, you know, we've never really seen you drunk. And I I said, well, that's probably because I'm a 300 pound dude who's half Irish and half German. So, you know, alcohol doesn't usually touch me. But um, my lovely traveling companion and I, we went to uh, the oldest bar in America uh, it's called Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop. It's a uh, was a blacksmith shop built sometime in the 1700s. And now it's a bar. And according to our ghost tour guide, they make the best and most potent hurricanes in New Orleans there. And it's on Bourbon Street. Uh, a little ways up from some of the neon storefronts that most of the tourists go to. But this is one of the older sections of town. And between the two of us, we drank a dozen hurricanes. Now... Jesus Christ. I, I would like to say that... Between the two of us means that I had the lion's share, but no. My traveling companion, about a third of my size, and a lady, actually matched my fucking bloated German-Irish ass, drink for drink. <laughs> she had six, and I had six. And, and and there's the last thing I remember is getting in the lift and, and heading back to the hotel. Um, but, you know... <laughs> getting completely shit-faced at the oldest bar in America on the local drink on Bourbon Street. That's that's a story that I would tell my grandkids if I'd ever even had kids in the first place. So, you know, very much a recommended experience. Um, we did have to deep-six a couple things on our itinerary the next day because we wound up not really getting out of bed, but still... <laughs> I imagine so. Still, it was, it was a worthwhile experience, and every single thing we did, saw, experienced, ate, and drank there was absolutely world-class. So, yeah, highly recommended. Make your way to New Orleans. Do all the tourist shit. Eat the beignets, eat the po' boys, eat the jambalaya, eat the gumbo. Go to little hole-in-wall restaurants. Drink a bita. Just have all the things happen to you and do all the things, and, and, and I can't wait to go back and do it all over again. Except maybe the, the complete blackout drinking. <clears throat> yeah, don't recommend doing that. So
0: everybody can drink, drink drunk right now.
1: Well, it sounds like
0: you, I mean, I had a great time. I enjoy being in the studio. Uh, Like I said, our producer just makes me sound amazing. But uh, that sounds like an unbeatable experience. And I am insanely jealous. It's definitely a bucket list item for sure.
1: You got to do it. You know, it's one of those things you really need to get to once in your life. And the, the gut level vibe of that place. Maybe it's the history. Maybe it's the architecture. Maybe it's the food. Maybe it's just the the swampy atmosphere. Because uh, it was hotter than shit. It did feel like walking around in an armpit. It was just hot. Hot, hot, hot. In the 90s and, you know, above a 90% dew point every day. Uh, it's part of the charm <laughs> of the place. But... Um, yeah, it, it feels like no other town on Earth, uh, and, and for very good, valid, and legitimate reasons.
0: Well, that's awesome. I'm glad you had such a good time. I'm glad you're back. Uh, I did miss talking with you last weekend. Likewise. I've gotten rather used to the sound of your voice in my ear holes, so...
1: Well, you know, I have to apologize for that, but uh, at least there you're you finding go. it tolerable.
0: Uh you know, we do what we can. Yeah. So, but anyways, that is actually, believe it or not, catching up with Jim after his... Fantastical vacation was not the impetus for today's conversation. Today we wanted to talk about uh, one of the new movies that has come out on uh, HBO Max and in theaters was James Gunn's take on the DC movies, The Suicide Squad. Now, again, we talked about uh, in the previous episode how you have to differentiate between Suicide Squad and The Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad being Uh, The David Iyer take on the movie that came out a few years ago. I want to say, was that 2015? 15, 16, somewhere in there. Yeah. The Suicide Squad being James Gunn's take on the movie. Now, I don't have to uh, do this, but I'm going to mention it right now ahead of time. There are going to be just chock-a-block spoilers up in there. So if you haven't seen the movie, pause the podcast it's on HBO Max. You could check it out there. You could check it out in the theaters. Come back to us when you've watched it because you are gonna love it. Now, and 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 that's just a spoiler alert for myself. I'm kind of giving away the uh, the horse before the carriage. But here's the thing: James Gunn is a fantastic writer. Uh, he's a wonderful director. He's got a a, a kind of charm about his stuff that is hard to articulate it's comedy it's not it's I mean I don't know I could I could gush effusive praise over James Gunn all day and I might but just suffice it to say that there will be incredible amounts of spoilers in this episode for the suicide squad
1: we're going to put that in the facebook post when we put it up we're going to put that on buzzsprout when we put up this episode we're going to make sure and put it in the blurb that precedes the episode and all the syndication platforms and i'm going to say it again even though saint just kind of really covered it very effectively there there spoilers ahoy there's going to be spoilers up the ass in this episode so if you have not yes watched the suicide squad yet Just, yeah, pause the episode, go watch it, go check it out, then come back and listen. Um, And and from the end of when I finish actually saying this next sentence forward is going to be when the spoilers start, comma. So this is your final warning. Stop now if you haven't seen the movie. Uh, yeah, spoiler alert. And now, ahead we go.
0: Onward to adventure. All right, so The Suicide Squad, uh, created by... Uh, James Gunn in partnership with DC Comics. Um, it was released July 30th in the United Kingdom, August 5th in the United States. August 5th was actually supposed to release August 6th. Uh, did you know that? But August 5th was James Gunn's birthday. So they released it a day early. To celebrate Happy birthday James to James Gunn. Gunn. Yeah,
1: it, it hit Absolutely. HBO Max, uh, I want to say 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, the day before the actual official release. So that was a pleasant surprise. Although I did go to see it in the theater because, um, once again, the same traveling companion that accompanied me to New Orleans is a big uh, comic book movie fan and particularly a really big fan of Harley Quinn. And uh, so she is of the considered opinion that superhero films, whether DCEU or MCU, must be experienced on the big screen. And I am of the same mind. I don't even disagree a little bit. So we went to go check it out at my local Cineplex.
0: See, and me, because I got my two kids and my wife and me, it would have been a very, exp- not only expensive to see it in the theater, but we've been kind of waiting on uh, getting my daughter back in and around public because she hasn't been vaccinated yet. Um, and so this is not me being preachy about vaccinations. You do you. Um, just know that we're judging you.
1: Yeah, um, but- I'll be preaching that for both <laughs> of us. Get fucking vaccinated if you can, unless you're, you know, like uh, Saint's little Girl under 12. Uh, and it's not really on the agenda for you yet.
0: Yet. However, uh, so we watched that at home. Um, I took my kid out. We saw uh, Black Widow in the theater, but we watched that at home again, too. So, But I like to try and support in the theaters when I can. It's an experience that I enjoy. Yep. Uh, and it's an experience that I hope to enjoy going into the future. I know that right. they're still trying to, to bash out what that's going to look like here in the future. But uh, So The Suicide Squad... Now, the thing with this movie is, uh, James Gunn got assigned to write this movie and to direct this movie during his whole Fallout with Marvel thing, after Guardians of the Galaxy 2, uh, when he uh, had some right wing troll, I guess, come out online and expose a bunch of uh, tweets they had made a number of years ago when he was trying to be edgy, com- comedy guy, and. And, and and they were problematic tweets and and so Disney very rightly said well you know what we kind of have to distance ourselves from you now because that's what we've been doing um and, and so James Gunn had been removed from writing and directing duties for Guardians of the Galaxy 3
1: yeah and at, so at, at the risk of repeating ourselves i feel like every time we we bring up James Gunn because we do praise his work and we do enjoy it we almost have to um you know, f- follow up with, with that disclaimer, because we have touched on it before, it was a big part of the Sparkling Consequences episode, and every time right. that we talk about, you know, what the uh, the reactionaries call cancel culture, James Gunn does come up, because you're right, he did say some pretty problematic shit at one point, it was very public, and uh, it came back to haunt him, um, but because, much much in, in, in contrast with, like, the actress who formerly played Cara Dune on The Mandalorian who we do not speak her name, we do not reference her, if we can help it.
0: Hello, who's this?
1: But the difference (laughs) uh, between being somebody who is accepted back into the popular culture and being somebody who's continued to be shunned by the popular culture tends to be the difference between yeah, I fucked up, the shit I said was ridiculous, I am sorry for it, I'm trying to learn and grow be a better person and move past who I used to be versus yeah, I said what I said and doubling down on hatred, bigotry, and intolerance. So... We, we do, almost every time we mention James Gunn, kind of have to bring that up, because otherwise right. somebody might get the wrong idea that we're sort of like you know in the dark on his mea culpas, as well as the reason he issued them, but rest assured, if you've heard any other episode of this podcast, and hopefully you have, but if not, um, we don't really make any bones about our politics, we kind of wear them on our sleeve a little bit, we are responsible citizens of the universe up in here, and we, we just don't tolerate hatred, bigotry, prejudice, we don't tolerate any of that shit, we don't put up with it, and there's just no room for no. it in, in, in the fandom. Every every sci-fi, every comic book, every superhero entity, every sort of like piece of geek entertainment since, I mean probably before but as, at least as early as as the original Star Trek series uh, and, and you know some of uh, Stan Lee's early comic book creations that were trying to foster the idea of tolerance through sort of like the, the, the mutant intolerance that happened in the early X-Men comics or you know, putting Peter Parker up as being—he's just a kid. He kind of needs a break once in a while. And really trying to humanize those heroes. So at least since like the civil rights era, like early '60s era, most of geek culture has been about trying to promote togetherness, brotherhood, tolerance, acceptance, all of that. And we are big proponents of that shit. So, at the risk of Absolutely. really beating that dead horse over and over again, we do have to sort of like always back end our praise of James Gunn and his work with the disclaimer um, and the caveat that that we don't. Uh, support the, the shit he said, but we do support his his uh, his attitude towards being a better person. He did the work. He right. he apologized, and he's he's being a better person going forward. So we feel comfortable supporting his work, not just because it's great geek culture shit, but also because James Gunn as a person has has really done the work, and he's he's put in the uh, he's he's you know it's not just an apology to her. He really has um, done what he can to try and atone for his past mistakes, and so that's something that has right. to be said
0: to the point that disney hired him back because they realized he'd done the work yeah so, i mean but all of that aside now as the suicide squad was originally going to be a sequel to suicide squad and david Iyer had been originally set to direct the sequel um but he kind of uh decided to try and develop the gotham city sirens idea and yeah. so they kind of left that and and when Marvel kind of deep six James Gunn at that point, uh, DC decided, hey, we've seen his work. We know what he can do. Let's snap him up. Uh, and, of course, James Gunn drew inspiration for the Suicide Squad uh, from the original comics and, and com- like some war films. And, and it's very just uh, gritty and real, but it's also comedic, which is kind of a trademark of his. He really does manage Oman- to
1: balance the heart with the humor.:
0: He does, and I think that's what endeared uh, Guardians of the Galaxy to me as well, because the characters, these, these such disparate kind of uh, personalities that should not work together, worked well together because they had that heart, that comedy, that, that kind of just connection that you know we kind of hope for. And, and I didn't see that gel in the first Suicide Squad movie. I mean, it, it, no. it, it, it seemed just like gritty action for gritty action's sake, which is kind of a, a a stance that I've taken on a lot of the DCEU films. And and then, of course, there's Say What You Will About Jared Leto's Joker. Mm. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan, but nor I. I, t- I, I definitely think that tanked a bunch of the Uh, goodwill for that movie and and I'm not saying Jared Love is a bad actor quite the contrary he's a fantastic actor he's an Oscar winning actor I think he did he did the best he could given the material
1: yes I agree but it
0: didn't it didn't do the Joker any favors it didn't do Harley Quinn any favors oh I'm not gonna kill you I'm just gonna hurt you really really bad uh it, it just left a lot out in the open and so uh, James Gunn's take on it. Now, one of the early things that James Gunn did was he started releasing this mad cast of, of, of people. And, and, and the cast list just seemed ridiculously long for reasons we'll get into here in a minute. But yeah, let's just go down a few of these characters. Now, we had Margot Robbie returning as Harley Quinn. Uh, Idris Elba as Bloodsport. John Cena as Peacemaker.
1: I didn't see John Cena in that movie.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. you know.
1: Yes, you did.
0: Oh, I, I, yes, I, you did. I, I, I
1: didn't. I didn't see John Cena.
0: <laughs> I didn't see him. Oh no, I get where you're going, but I saw everything. <laughs> uh, Joel Kinnaman him, comes back as uh, Rick Flag. Uh, Sylvester Stallone in a very surprise appearance as the voice of King Shark. And we'll get into that, too. I love that. Viola Davis coming back as uh, Amanda Waller. Uh, David Dostmalchian, I think I'm pronouncing that right, as the uh, Polka Dot Man. Uh, Danella Melchior as Ratcatcher 2. So Michael Rooker as Savant. Jai Courtney, of course, coming back as Captain Boomerang. Uh, Peter Capaldi as The Thinker, which was fantastic. I love it. He's practically unrecognizable in that that getup that they had him in, um, and then Pete Davidson as uh, a Blackguard, which was fantastic. But so they brought this entire, I mean, and then there's 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 more. That's just the list that I got off the top. But there's just this incredible, stunning list of people that are coming in. It's a massive and, list and for, of really
1: A-list actors. Right, I mean, and Pete Davidson. So, I mean, hey, I love Pete Davidson. I'm pulling I for Pete Davidson. Too. He's, he, I, you I know, I, I love that kid. I really do. And, and the fact the that King he's been in the Staten public eye was and, fantastic. Yeah, it was, and I love him on SNL. I've been a fan of SNL my entire life. I, I, I don't really understand why a lot of people are, you know, OS oh, knows better when I was a kid. No, SNL was better when you woke up to SNL and first started to appreciate it. It's the same thing as, like, saying, like, the music is better when you were a kid. Which I do say, because it's a fact. But, it is. you know, yeah. nonetheless, I mean, whatever you first started to appreciate it, that's the cast you relate to. Uh, but Pete Davidson, I love him on SNL. I'm rooting for the kid. He's gone through some very public relationship and mental health struggles. Um, so, you know, he's, he's kind of still going I'm... through it. So, I love I'm the kid. Pulling I'm pulling for, for him,
0: it. too. I, I, I give him shit, but I'm pulling for him, too. And like I said, King of Staten Island was fantastic. Yeah, it was. Um, him and Bill Burr together was was really cool to see. And, and knowing that that movie was, was partially based on his real life and yep. his real experience was, it was really helpful to kind of get a better understanding of where Pete Davidson is as a person.
1: But just so. in any case, a massive, massive cast of household names which it, right. it looks to, you know, and, and, and Nathan Fillion also as, uh, as TDK, mm. uh, TDK, the detachable, the detachable kid. kid. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and it's just, and, and Sean Gunn, uh, of course, uh, Weasel. Uh, as yeah. Weasel. Yeah, he, Sean Gunn, who, who famously did the motion capture for Rocket Raccoon, and who also played a very pivotal role as one of the uh, privateers in Guardians of the Cragland. Galaxy, one of Yandu's crew. Yandu, yep. of course, also Michael Rooker. So, uh, Sean Gunn does have his, his stable of stalwarts he likes to work with, and I don't blame him because mm-hmm. uh, they're fantastic actors. But watching the trailer for this film, you looked at it and you thought, that is an absolutely massive cast. How could they possibly utilize all of these people? And, of course, it was a massive <laughs> fucking fake-out. And, again, spoilers, <laughs> Ahoy! because They um, x
0: force their asses x force
1: yeah now they if X-Force you if you them. are a, a comic book movie fan and you thought hey it was a very very funny moment when when deadpool and domino and uh, that whole the x force crew jumped out of the airplane and, and deadpool too and then wound up getting smashed by cars and falling into wood chippers and and basically dying except <laughs> of course for domino who can manipulate probability or at least is subject to good luck um this was kind of like taking that, pumping it up full of steroids, and setting that shit on fire. Uh, there were about fifteen. Oh, Flula Borg, also who is a fantastic comedian and, oh, and an amazing I actor. Borg. I love your accent. American women all love accents. We do because we don't got none. Yeah, it's it's so easy to forget how many great people were in this because um, played javelin. Yeah, the the entire first squad, the A squad. That you first saw being assembled in a prison yard and packed into a cargo carrying airplane, or a personnel carrying airplane, and then and then transported to, uh, Cordo Maltese to uh, to do this this secret undercover uh, government dangerous mission, the entire A squad that you see, essentially winds up dying within the first ten to fifteen minutes of the movie, and <laughs> and that is okay. I got something I want to say about that too. Yeah. Now now again, we
0: talked about this being spoilerific. At this point, you're fucked. So yeah. Uh, The entire Ace Squad, with the exception of Harley Quinn and Rick Flagg, gets just annihilated. And not just, like, shot, but like, holy shit, annihilated. Fucking Pete Davidson gets shot in the face. He gets his Uh, face clean
1: shot off the front of his skull.
0: Yeah, I think it was like a fifty cal or whatever, but, you know, Mongal gets wiped out by a helicopter. Uh, Captain Boomerang also dies by a helicopter. I mean, Weasel drowns,
1: or, or does he? Um, uh, yeah. It, it, it's Javelin a winds up getting gunned down. It's, 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 an, it's an absolute bloodbath before the credits, and and Weasel uh, jumps out of a plane and appears to drown. Again, that's a little bit of foreshadowing. Did anyone check on where the Weasel could swim? Yeah, basically storms the beach like, like, uh, like the soldiers in Normandy, although I shouldn't probably make light of that, and they just wind up getting eviscerated they wind up getting torn apart like wet toilet paper and it's not and it's kind of it's played for laughs a little bit like pete davidson's entire face gets shot off the front of his skull and nathan fillion playing the detachable kid his whole power is he can detach his arms and they can move independently apart from his body but he just winds up kind of bitch slapping a couple guys with ak-47s they wind up not only shooting his arms out of the air but filling him more full of holes than 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 fucking lorraine cheese uh which is uh Really unfortunate, but and then of course Savant, who was who uh, Michael Rooker, who's kind of just classically Mr. plays Mr. Badass. badass, yeah, yeah. He's got that kind of craggy face and that gravitas demeanor. He uh, winds up watching all this unfold in front of him, realizes he's more fucked than the head cheerleader on prom night, and grabs a raft and starts trying to swim out to shore. But of course, one of the plot points that's carried over from the original Suicide Squad and sort of uh, is crucial to these characters is every one of them has a very small explosive device that's been inserted under the skin at the base of their skull. And if at any time they disobey a direct order, and they're being monitored constantly by Amanda Waller and her team, she can essentially flip a switch and and perish them—just blow their head clean off their neck. Um, and uh, so that's what winds up happening to him. He abandons the mission. She gives him several <laughs> warnings over his comms to turn back around and. But he's,
0: but he's panicking. And he's he not Listen, Anne. She blows his head off.
1: And pow. You know, she just takes that, that nut clean off his stalk and, and he just winds up kind of drifting in the surf a little bit. So that's when oh. the credits roll. That's when the opening credits roll over the song People Who Died by Jim Carroll. So just in case you're wondering <laughs> if these are superhero slash comic books slash movie deaths and some of these folks will rise up and live again, no. Uh, it, it's made pretty clear that a lot of the... I mean, between blowing faces off, blowing heads off, filling people you know full of holes, the entire A-Squad some of these household name actors just gets torn apart like like wet toilet paper. And down they go. And that's when the actual plot of the movie kicks in, because that's when we pull out to an overhead satellite view, and Amanda Waller's like, okay, well, what about the B-team? And then we zoom in on the characters we're going to come to know, Love and in some cases loathe over the course of the next two and a half hours.
0: Right. And now here's where I want to point out. I was talking to Jim about this. I was watching this movie again for like the second time while I was at work because I have HBO Max on my phone and and I get bored and and I'm sitting there a lot. So I was sitting there watching this again and I realized and I don't know if this is 100% confirmed because I can't get any confirmation on it. But I swear to Jesus that they spoiled this Plot point before the movie even
1: started. During the title card.
0: During the title card, they show the WB shield. There's a green X on the northeast side of the WB shield. There is a red X on the southeast side of the shield. And if you take the shield to indicate Cordo Maltese, the island of Cordo Maltese, the red X would be right around where Team A goes in and gets massacred. The green X would be right around where Team B comes in and has a clear and free entry point to the island, and it just red X indicates death. It indicates done, and would it's I feel like the, he was spoiling that, and it's just I haven't seen it mentioned anywhere. So you guys hear it here first, damn it! If you yeah. see it pointed out, I called that shit way back.
1: Yeah, it's so, one um, of those um, things that uh, is kind of, it's it's a foreshadow, it's a spoiler, it's, it's just a little, a little thing that you notice on the second viewing, if you decide to go back and watch it again, and I did watch parts of it, I'm gonna watch it all the way through one more time, because it was such an enjoyable experience, um, but I watched it in the theater, and then because it is on HBO Max, I pulled it up and I scrubbed through it and watched a couple of scenes and, and did pick up a couple of extra things, but yeah, that is one of those things that becomes apparent on the second watch, because when you do... See in the film how the overhead satellite view of the beach where teams a and b storm the uh the encampment uh or at least the uh the, the, the troops from cord maltese from different edges of the island you're right those x's on that title card on that on that uh the studio shield frame are in the relative positions of the two teams that live and die as as the film I, unfolds
0: I sent James Gunn an instagram post. I'm hoping he'll respond I doubt it but Hey, James, if you're listening for whatever ridiculous reason, uh, let me know. I want to know if I'm the first person to call that shit out, because that's incredible, if so. But you're right. Then we get welcome to our B-team, which, of course, is the people that we stick with most of the movie. we got Idris Elba's character of Bloodsport, uh, Ratcatcher 2, uh, King Shark Peacemaker, and... uh, And Polka Dot Man. Polka Dot Man, that's right. And Polka Dot Man, I think I was... Is particularly delighted to see. Now, I've I've got uh, a passing familiarity with all of these characters. I've been collecting comics for a lot of years. uh, But Polka Dot Man seemed like the most ridiculous pull ever.
1: He was always kind of played for laughs a little bit.
0: Like, kind of like up there with Kite Man or uh, Crazy Quilt and and shit like that. Like Egghead. Just kind of a a D-tier Batman villain that just kind of, you know, he threw Polka Dots. I mean, what the hell? One of the but less menacing to, and
1: sort of goofier characters. Right. One of the, the more colorful nuts in the rogues gallery. Rainbow Raider and shit right. like that. But they made
0: him into not only a, a, a decent uh, foil or bad guy. I don't want to say villain. He didn't seem very anti-hero. but A anti-hero.
1: great addition to the team. A, 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 yeah. a very... Um, integral component of the team. Yeah, he definitely does. He holds you his think he? would Oh, here's this guy who's he's he's got a, a jumpsuit covered in colorful polka dots. He kind of looks like a uh, a, a quasi menacing circus clown. But they gave this guy <laughs> a a backstory and a character arc that was one of the most satisfying in the film,
0: and, and absolutely redeeming to him. And 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 then we got like uh, Ratcatcher two, who's got, uh, uh, and, and I just want to specify Ratcatcher one, her father. Uh, played in the flashback sequences by Taika Waititi. I love Taika Waititi. I'll give that guy a shout anytime I can. Um, but she has her rat Sebastian, which is funny because uh, apparently Idris Elba's blood sport is deathly afraid of rats, which nobody knew about.
1: I'm not shaking the rat's hand.
0: <laughs> I guess they didn't do their homework as well as they needed to. Amanda Waller. Um, but... There's just this, this great dynamic between all of the characters. And of course, King Shark uh, being the big monosyllabic brute who's trying to make himself seem more than he is. Uh, he's trying to sound smarter, trying to be more integral. Like, does it talk?
1: Book read. Wow. <laughs> book's upside down. See that? It's pretending to read a book. So smart, me. Enjoy books so much.
0: And I mean, he's really just a glorified muscle, but at the same time, uh, done with just a little bit of a comic quirk to him, and and, and deftly played by uh, uh, by by Sylvester Stallone. And he, it's beautiful. It's it's a, you never. I mean, you you end up pulling for King Shark in a way you never would have anticipated. Now, King Shark, of course, was was physically motion captured by uh, what was his name?
1: Steve Agee. Steven who is Agee. A, a, yeah, right. a fantastic comic. I, I, he's a stand-up comic. I love this guy. Um, I, He's I, I've seen a lot of his uh, his, his stand-up work. Um, he's been kind of a character actor for a long time. He's, he's very much I think he was um, one of the two neighbors on the Sarah Silverman show, the other being Brian Posehn, who kind of you know they sort of share kind of a same uh, you know imposing physical Their
0: vibe yeah
1: yeah thing but like uh, Steve Agee actually pulled double duty. In this movie, because he was not only the uh, the the motion capture for King Shark, but he also played John Economos, who was one of Amanda Waller's team back at Command Central. Uh, So Steve Agee uh, just you know really having a great time in that movie. Um, And King Shark, the combination of his physical performance and Sylvester Stallone's endearing vocal performance, made King Shark I will say easily my favorite character in the film, because much like the, the the tendency is to be with these the big muscle characters. They're they're just a, a big dopey brute, but they got a heart of gold. They're kinda lovable. Um, they, they sort of wanna be good, but they because the world has sort of pigeonholed them as a monster, they're sort of reactionary. I mean it's it's a character archetype that goes all the way back to Frankenstein's monster, being like the the big dopey brute who everyone kind of recoils in fear from, but who just wants to kind of be a good person but keeps on getting shunted into doing bad things just because that's what the world expects of them, and it winds up being easier that way. If they're going to run and scream and recoil in horror from you, well, if they're going to expect a monster, give them the fucking monster. But, you know, at, at the same time, on the inside, you just kind of are a gentle soul. Even if you do tear people apart and eat their entrails. <laughs> you're still not a... You know, like like uh, Zangief said in Wreck-It Ralph, just because you're a bad guy doesn't mean you got to be a bad guy. And now, Wei. And? Yes. That is your hand, the way. Very good. Um, right. So I, I wound up loving King Shark absolutely. You know, he was he was my favorite character, and in, in a film full of of second place really candidates well for characters. favorite character, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And this the thing is, this is the second time that I've actually come to really appreciate King Shark as a character, because if anyone out here has watched the Harley Quinn cartoon, which uh, I have, first of all, rated R, very hard R. Be mm-hmm. with that. Not for kids. But uh, King Shark on that show played by uh, Ron Funches, which is also hilarious. Ron Funches is an amazing comedian. One of my favorite and, and comedians. And just a one, wonderful human being as well, speaking of. Yeah, fresh fish. Fish, 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 <laughs> fish, <laughs> fish!
1: Now, fellas, look, I know it's just in fun, but what the fuck did I tell you about that world? Oh, yeah, sorry, King. Ooh, sorry about that. Oh, they're learning baby steps. Right, me. I will kill each and every one of you with my bare hands if I have to! And Steve Ag and Ron Funches used to do a lot of episodes of At Midnight, which I loved that show, that Chris Hardwick show that was on Comedy Central At Midnight. It was a panel show, kind of making fun of the day's internet happenings, and I loved that show. And Steve Ag and Ron Funches were both frequent guests on that program, and that's kind of when I fell in love with Ron Funches. He's just a funny, lovable, huggable, hysterical kind of giggly guy who can say absolutely off the wall things that kind of make you gasp but then he's just so fucking cute he just gets away with it and and so yeah both iterations of king shark that have kind of hit the airwaves of the streaming services the big screen the small screen recently uh between sylvester stallone steve ag and ron Funches, they're just all endearing as shit, and i love every one of them
0: and, and not for nothing but six degrees of uh separation here uh ron Funches was on at midnight done by chris hardwick Chris Hardwick, who did the ID10T podcast and the Nerdist podcast before it, are the he was the inspiration for me to do my podcast initially too. So uh, six degrees of Chris Hardwick right here. So, anyways, thought I'd throw that in there. Good stuff. But uh, but yeah, King Shark, and then of course Peacemaker, uh, done by the one, the only John Cena.
1: Who is just a yeah. fantastic person and an amazing actor and a funny guy and I love I've loved everything that I've ever seen him in, whether it's him, you know, being I think the most frequent grantor of make a wish wishes that he works with that organization. He is so he's just and a fantastic that's an amazing human amazing thing. Yeah. To so the wrestling ring. And I'm not like a huge wrestling fan. I used to be when I was a kid, but I've seen some wrestling now and John Cena is a very charismatic and captivating presence in the ring when he gets in. It's not as often a thing for him anymore. He does cameos, he'll still show up at like SummerSlam or WrestleMania or whatever. But uh, also, he's just been in some really, really—he was the best thing about um, *Trainwreck* with Bill Hader and Amy Schumer. Uh, he was—he uh, did this this fireman movie that I, I don't remember the name of that I, that I saw a little while ago. That was, that was underrated. Didn't do well at the box office, but very funny. But John Cena just really becoming a force to be reckoned with on the big screen after starting in the in the ring.
0: Absolutely, and we we touched on that a little bit with the last episode when we talked about wrestlers who are making their. Yep. Uh, big screen careers happen with him, and, and of course, uh, Dave Bautista and, and, and The Rock, uh, Mr. Dwayne Johnson. But it's really kind of nice to see. He's got a physicality that you cannot deny because, I mean, there is a scene in this movie, and I, I alluded to it earlier, but you see London, you see France, you see John Cena in his underpants.
1: <laughs> You're not the me for, man. Why the fuck are you in your underwear? Tighty whities? Really? No, that's just racist.
0: Imposing to that say man is least. a physical specimen in a superhero movie. <laughs> he's, a, he's,
1: he's in a superhero movie alongside guys like Idris Elba, and uh, he still is just he's you know prancing around in his tidy whities in one scene. And good lord, that guy must live on whey protein. He's just ripped to the nostrils.
0: And those tidy whities don't leave a lot to the
1: imagination. My God, they do not. But again, like his comic, <laughs> t- the guy will do anything for a laugh, and that's one of the things I love about him. His and his comedic timing. It's not just parading around with his like ridiculously cut physique and a tiny pair of DVDs. His, his comedic timing is just fantastic. But in this film, he also displays his range, because for most of the film, he's just really funny. He's kind of a, a foil to, uh, to um, Bloodsport, Bloodsport, because they have a sort of a very similar backstory, which is lampshaded and laughed at a little bit. He does exactly what I do, but better. I always hit my target's dead center. I hit them more in the center. Are you can something more in the center? I use smaller bullets. What? Uh, you know, they're both elite super soldiers who are abused by their fathers and were trained to be killing machines. And, and Idris Elba is, well, why do we need two of them then? And he's just got a very valid point there. Because, uh, of the two of them, uh, Bloodsport definitely has a, uh, a much sharper mind. Uh, Peacemaker is shown to be a little bit dolty and a little bit silly and a little bit funny and not quite all there in some scenes. But! When the chips are down, and holy shit do they fall at one point, he also is shown to be somebody who I, I think might be a social statement a little bit on sort of like jingoistic patriotism, like blind obedience to authority. Um, because, yeah, well... What's the plan? How the hell I know? You're the leader. You're supposed to be decisive. And I've decided that you should eat a big bag of dicks. If this whole beach was completely covered in dicks, and somebody said I'd eat every dick until the beach was clean for liberty, I would say no problemo. Why would someone put penises all over the beach? Who knows why madmen do what they do? Right? And there you Absolutely go. Totally right. Uh, but also, like, he, he really gets his moment of gravitas later on, because, again, okay, spoilers ahoy. We, we warned you about this earlier. Apparently... Peacemaker has a secret mission that was given to him by Amanda Waller that the rest of the team is on a need-to-know basis about, and they don't need to know. Uh, we find out later in the film, and again we're getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit, that the, the shit that the Suicide Squad has been sent to Corte Maltese to stop, it's essentially because it was a covert American government program that went off the rails and they need to cover their ass on it a little bit. So one of the things that Peacemaker's been charged with, because... Amanda Waller obviously knows that his role in the team is to blindly follow authority and to do what he's told because he fancies himself a good guy. Um, even though at some uh, earlier on in the film he says, uh, yeah, my name's Peacemaker because I will assure peace no matter how many men, women, and children I have to kill to get there. So he's already kind of portrayed as being a goofy <laughs> kind of uh, uh, character that engages in a whole lot of cognitive dissonance. But his particular mission within the mission is to retrieve a hard drive from the uh, the server room of this... uh Jotunheim, this, this, this secret project that's kind of a, a shadow project of the American government taking place in the island of Corta it, it, It's a little confusing, but it makes sense if you watch the movie. And if you haven't watched the movie, you really shouldn't be hearing this anyway, so you know. But his job is to retrieve a hard drive that has compromising information on it that, w- that would incriminate the American government in their role in this project Jotunheim, which is what they've ostensibly been sent to stop. So he gets his moments where he really needs to kind of pull his shit together, get his turds in a herd and his poop in a group, and go after other members of the team with whom he's been fighting side by side for most of the movie in order to achieve his mission within the mission that he's been given covertly. And that's when John Cena really shows his range, because he is a funny, goofy character for most of the film, but he really gets to be very serious when when the time comes for him to either sink or swim uh, based on the orders he's been given secretly.
0: And then, all right, so we'll we'll touch on a bit more of that in here in a bit, but we got the other two members of the team that we need to discuss are Ratcatcher. We only briefly talked about her uh, and her little uh, traveling companion, Sebastian. Uh, I read a really interesting thing, because her character's kind of lethargic the entire movie, and they just kind of play it off like, ah, these friggin' millennials don't want to do any work, and this, that, and the other thing, but... One of the things that I read on in one of these articles was talking about her character in particular. They were talking about uh, she runs with rats. Uh, she could very well have, you know, parts of the bubonic plague, and we just wouldn't know. The sleep, the sleepiness, the the uh, not really clean, not really. I mean, they they touch on on a bunch, but uh, she's really lethargic and everything like that, but. The fact of the matter is, is she might have some kind of disease. Low grade infection. With all these rodents, yeah. So that might be. I mean, it's play. Again, played for laughs. Like she's all just this lazy millennial, doesn't want to get her hands dirty, doesn't want to do any work. But she might genuinely be sick. And uh, yeah. Danielle Melicor has actually come out and said that uh, she wants to. Like she enjoyed doing the rat catcher, but we don't really see her as a villain what would have gotten her locked up in Rev Penitentiary in the first place? And so she actually wants to do an appearance as Ratcatcher where we get to see her full-on villainy. And I, for one, would love that.
1: Yeah, because that's the one piece of her backstory they don't explain. They definitely go into how she came to be somebody who has control over rat swarms and individual rats uh, and the special relationship she had with her father. But we don't really, if I remember right, don't really see why she was... A villain or a criminal in the first place. You're right. Um, but she in many ways was kind of the emotional heart of the film. She was definitely the most sympathetic character with, uh, Polka Dot Man sort of being a close second. Um, but only because we do sort of get to see what Polka Dot Man's backstory is. And that is, uh, his mother was apparently kind of a mad scientist and experimented on all of her children, um, in an attempt to create a family of superheroes and it backfired, Uh, Polka Dot Man was the only one that survived, but he wound up with a weird sort of outer space infection that makes glowing dots well up under his skin, and then they must be purged. And in so doing, he can expel these dots, and they are sort of incendiary projectiles. It's never really quite explained how he manages to, uh, to get the dots out of his body and through his hands, but again, it's movie magic and superhero logic, so we need to think about it too hard. But the reason why Polka Dot Man is in jail... Uh, not jail. The reason why Polka Dot Man is incarcerated, why he's in prison, why he's a villain, is because he was so resentful of his mother that he killed her for the experiments on him, because he was the only one of his siblings that survived, and her experiments gave him this essentially horrible disease that he has to deal with that is the source of his power, but is also something that is very unpleasant for him to have to suffer through. And so his motivation for... Being on the team and the way he sort of psychologically deals with it is he anytime he's, he's called upon to strike against somebody he mentally projects the image of his mother onto them and we see that through his point of view and during a couple of different scenes in the film where other characters take on the appearance of his mother, um, which is a fascinating piece. Absolutely of,
0: hilarious. Yeah,
1: it's funny. It's sad and it's tragic, but it, it's 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 a little bit funny, um, because it is something that that we do get a sort of a peek into his psyche. But his whole persona is just so tragic and so sort of sad sacky like in the original briefing meeting when Amanda Waller was giving the, the team their orders um Idris Elba his character of Bloodsport sort of looks at the screen and says ah we're all gonna fucking die and David <laughs> Desmalkian as polka dot man turns wearily to him with a face full of sorrow and a wan grin and says I really hope so because he's just miserable he's, he's got a, he leads <laughs> he's a tortured, tortured. existence He's yeah. a tortured soul, So, in, but in order for him to channel his abilities to best benefit the team, he sort of has to go to a really dark psychological place. Even though the character is ostensibly funny and has always been played for laughs, and sort of is in this film too, you do get a sense of sort of where he's coming from as a character and what drives him, what motivates him, and it's kind of sad. No, I'm, I'm not even going to qualify it. It's very sad what drives him, but it does wind up making what happens to that character later all the more meaningful.
0: And then we got characters like uh Bloodsport. Now Bloodsport was initially not the character that they wanted for this movie. Uh they originally had uh Will Smith in the script returning as a Deadshot, but Will Smith could not return. He had obligations with other shit and and uh so they rewrote the character. They were originally going to I guess that there was a rumor going around that they were originally just going to recast him with Idris Elba. Which I'm okay with, because Idris Elba's fucking amazing. Yeah, I have a, I have a thing for that guy. He's amazing. But they also Never said they, they might leave that, that role
1: open in case Will Smith ever wants to return to it, because based on the... You know, I, I read some reports that this movie didn't do as well as they expected, but they also weren't taking into account really the streaming revenue, so you, you sort of have to figure that they're at least looking at a sequel, because it is a very talked about film. It was a tentpole summer superhero release, so uh, right. I'm sure it's probably at least in discussion. But they did want to leave the character of Deadshot open in case Will Smith wanted to return to it. So they did cast Idris Elba as a different character, very similar character, sort of a super soldier type with amazing marksmanship skills and a military history um, as, as Bloodsport. No of in
0: the DC universe.
1: Yeah, the backstory they gave on him was very similar to Peacemakers, as we've already touched on. Uh, he's a sort of a super soldier type. But his, the reason for his incarceration in Bell Rev at the beginning of the film... Uh, Amanda Waller references that he shot Superman with a kryptonite bullet.
0: So that's why he's cool in
1: his heels in in, in the incarceration. Here's
0: the thing. I I actually did... uh, Bloodsport was a character in a couple of the comics I had as a kid growing up. I did collect Superman pretty exclusively for a while. uh, Back during the death and rebirth of Superman era. um, After after Superman died. Or from... uh, uh, doomsday but uh, uh, Bloodsport was a character that I did see in the comics first and uh, his ability in the comics was to kind of uh, teleport weaponry so like he had this like personal teleporter where he could just manifest weapons when he needs it and they kind of uh, pay homage to that a little bit in this uh, uh, movie with his this weird tech vest that he wears that he's able to uh, formulate guns and his mask and everything out of the equipment on this vest and, and so they made it a bit more realistic quote-unquote realistic Comic. well it sort of reminded me of but...
1: like when when uh, tony stark stepped into the suitcase nano suit in iron man 2 uh it, right he's sort of got it, it's it's not implied by the narrative but it sort of is implied by the visuals that Bloodsport has kind of like a um <clears throat> a restructurable um sort of uh nano component to his his gear that he can sort of like hold out his hand and make gestures, and then weapons sort of assemble themselves around his hand out of like sort of uh, components. It very much was kind of like how the how the suit closed itself around Tony Stark. It just sort of reminded me of that. Um, right. But that's that's kind of it's it's shown in in a couple of different scenes that he can reconfigure this sort of adaptable weaponry for ad hoc needs as as they arise in situational things within the narrative.
0: Correct and. And so, I mean, they play him uh, for a very serious role on the team. You got a team full of uh of clowns, basically, second stringers that you need to have somebody there to tight rein leash on, and it's not going to be someone like peacemaker and Colonel Flagg and Harley Quinn being of course members of the first team, the actually suicided suicide squad, yeah, uh, they're kind of holdovers, so uh, but we we know what Harley Quinn is. By and large, we know what Margot Robbie brings to the role. We kind of know <clears throat> what Rick Flagg is and what Joel Kinnaman brings to the role. So that's why we're not mentioning them over much here. But uh, Margot Robbie, I do want to say, is absolutely pivotal as Harley Quinn. She's got that charm. She's got that kind of quirky comedy kind of note to her. But she has this physicality where she can do pretty much whatever she needs to do. There's an extended scene uh, where she's being tortured uh, in the movie. And that's actually her doing the stunt work. And the the Quentin Tarantino-esque foot fetish bullshit that she has (laughs) to do to get the key and and escape. uh, That's actually her doing that.
1: Yeah, she's essentially hung by her wrist and getting zapped with a cattle prod. And of course they're not really going to zap Margot Robbie with a cattle prod, but... She really was hanging from her wrists. And Hey, we're not kink-shaming here. We don't know what she's into. Well, you know what? That's a good point. I really shouldn't say that was a special effect. I doubt <laughs> it, but, you know, you never know. But one of the things that, that was that, that was kind of a holdover from David Ayer's film, there's a very famous sequence, the elevator sequence, in the, uh, the first film where Harley decides to take an elevator away from the rest of the team because she's quirky and on a loose cannon, unpredictable like that. And the uh, elevator winds up getting busted in on by a uh, sort of a a zombie goon that we never... It's sort of like one of Enchantress's, uh, um, you know, bubble-faced zombies, and we don't really know where they come from or what their abilities are, but they're sort of just like mindless cannon fodder that they can throw at the heroes. And she does this amazing run-up-the-wall-and-flip-over-this-character, this this uh, this zombie thing, and kills it in the elevator. And uh, at the time, I remember reading uh, the, the, the filmmakers, David Ayer in particular, were quick to point out, yeah, that wasn't a stunt double, it wasn't a special effect... Margot Robbie actually did that for real. I think it only took her two or three takes before they found one that they were happy with, but she did it full on herself two or three times. Talk about doing your own stunts. And then, yeah, in this film, she's hanging from her wrists, getting zapped, uh, after she. Um, a, a, an interesting sequence where she's sort of. Uh, and again, this is like a Game of Thrones thing. Anybody can die at any time. Uh, she was sort of uh, separated from the rest of the team after storming the beach and being one of the original Suicide Squad, Team A members. Because there was a sort of a tin pot dictator uh, guy that, that was uh, a self-proclaimed leader of Corta Maltese who was aware of her and her legacy as a villain and also as a beautiful woman and sort of took a shine to her and uh, took her out of the jail cell, the kidnapping, where she was being held, put her in this beautiful fancy red ball gown and, uh, you know, decided that he was going to make her his wife and she was going to be his love interest. Um that but then, didn't go well. No, it didn't go well, because uh, <laughs> sort of it's like a response, I think, to the David Ayer version of the Joker, who was, of course, shown to be, at least in keeping with most traditional interpretations of the character, kind of a psychopath. Not even, I'm not even going to qualify it again for the second time. I'm not going to qualify it. Damn well to a psychopath. psychopath. And so uh, when the leader of Cordo Maltese is monologuing while looking out a window and waxing rhapsodic about how... It's really his duty to do the difficult thing and quash rebellions, even if it's women and children, and just generally uh, rule his country with an iron fist. Um, she pulls a a very uh, elaborate and and, um, and beautifully carved display gun. Like a, bl- like a hand blunderbuss, like a pearl-handled engraved barrel gun out of a nearby display, <laughs> and she shoots him dead on the spot. And then he's as he's crawling across the parquet floor, bleeding out from a, uh, a gut wound, she tells him as he's dying that that's really her response to kind of getting over toxic relationships, and she's just not <laughs> interested in, in, in dating guys who give off red flags like that anymore. So then the, the subsequent torture uh, being hung from the wrists comes from... Uh, her being busted in on by the militia and them realizing that she killed their de facto leader so yeah she's hanging from her wrist by a set of chains in a dungeon-like atmosphere and getting basically jabbed in the ribs of the cattle prod and uh, she waits for the uh, the new leader the new sort of tin pot dictator generalissimo guy with all the fruit salad on his chest and the epaulets to uh, to leave the room. <laughs> And then when the back of the primary torturer is turned, she uses her immense full body strength to lift her legs up, wrap her thighs around this guy's neck, and snap it. And then, as Saint alluded to earlier, use her sort of prehensile foot fetish Quentin Tarantino toes to grab the, the, uh, the, the keys off of his belt, and then arc her legs up to the lock that's holding her suspended by the chains, undo the, the lock with the key held in her toes, and drop to safety. And once again, much like the elevator sequence in David Ayer's Suicide Squad, in The Suicide Squad by James Gunn, Margot Robbie again fully performed the stunt. She reached with her legs, grabbed the keys with her toes, reached her legs up, and unlocked, using some, the the woman is a legitimate superhero at this point. She's not even playing a superhero anymore. The woman is a legitimate, goddamn, abilitied superhero, because she unlocked the lock with her toes.
0: She's a full embodiment of what we would want a Harley Quinn to be. Which she is, is as much I mean, Harley Quinn
1: as Robert Downey Jr. will always be Iron Man. Every every inch. I agree,
0: I agree. Uh, I, I mean, nothing to say against Kaylee Kuko who does the the character now, or or Tara Strong who did the character before. But she brings something this just this, this insane physicality to this role. A dedication. And you just believe it. Yeah. 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 You just believe it. So I mean, we could definitely talk about all these different characters forever, but we're missing the main point. The entire thrust of this movie, Project Jotunheim, Starro the Conqueror, yes, which is, uh, I mean, and we, and we can talk about uh, Peter Capaldi as the thinker who is this, he's the character brought in uh, as the Starro keeper, basically. He's there at Project Jotunheim, he's the one who takes care of Starro, uh, or tortures Starro, and... And and anyone who's had any kind of passing familiarity with DC Comics over the years knows that Starro is this intergalactic starfish, basically, with one big eyeball in the middle. And Starro releases tiny versions of himself that latch onto a person or creature or whatever's face. And creates a hive mind of of
1: brainless soldiers.
0: Exactly. And then takes mental control of it. Now, we do actually have, and I want to mention this because I'm a huge Batman fan, there is... Uh, a version of Starro that is essentially a robin in the Batman comics. his name's Jarro because he lives in a jar and he works with Batman, which is cute mm-hmm. I don't know where that I don't know where that sets up in the whole be all end all of the DC universe, but I just wanted to throw that out there but Starro is this uh, immense creature that they find in space. They bring him back down to Earth and they're trying to weaponize him. Pointedly, NASA finds Joe him Man in space. Is. And
1: that's that's that plays into the uh, uh, right. Peacemaker having the, the orders to cover up America's involvement in it. Because, yeah, Starro, when when originally found, is is maybe about five or six feet across. But as Starro assimilates new hosts, Starro grows. He and grows. And yeah. his, his power grows and his influence grows. And, Make my monster grow! And that's why uh, he's sort of being developed as a... Uh, as a biological weapon by Project Chotenheim and when it all goes tits up, and America has to sort of cover up their involvement in it, because corda Maltese essentially gets taken over by a military junta, by a coup, um, and then they are, this, this, this regime that is hostile to the United States is essentially in possession of one of their great secret dark money projects, one of their black books projects, uh, that's when they have to go in and, and uh, terminate uh, America's, and pointedly, the, the the job is not to go in and get rid of the monsters, not to go in and get rid of Starro. Amanda Waller's entire agenda for this is simply to go in and cover up America's involvement in developing Starro so that when Starro right. does wind up inevitably breaking loose and, and tearing things apart, uh, at least, hey, our hands are clean, we had nothing to do with that, even though we did, but you can't prove anything.
0: But yeah, so giant Starro now has the ability to release little baby Starro's and starts... Taking over Quarter Maltese. Because, and it's not for any kind of villainous turn. He just wants to be left alone. And, and I think it's funny because Steven Agee at one point goes, holy shit, it's a fucking kaiju. Yep. And 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 it is. And it's, where's our Voltron when we need it? You know what I mean? Where's but yeah, Megazord? all it wants to do,
1: all Star wants to do is take over the island so that it can live in peace. It doesn't be controlled anymore. It doesn't want to be a weapon. So there's also sort of a sympathetic aspect to the, uh, what essentially winds up being the big bad, the, you know, 70 tall story monster that winds up sort of being the thing that the heroes end up having to stop in order to save the world. Um, although, it, it, it wouldn't have probably escaped the borders of Cordo Maltese. It would have just taken over the populace, turned everybody on the island into its little mindless drones, and just tried to live in peace. Leave me alone. But because it is a, you know, 70 foot tall monster from outer space... It can't turn around without knocking over architecture, and of course that's not going to do. So we have to do something about that. And even though Amanda Waller is giving the orders and has the kill switch, the literal kill switch that you can use to blow up the skulls of any of the heroes-slash-anti-heroes-slash-villains on the Suicide Squad, uh, they decide to disobey direct orders anyway and save the island, just because they have that sort of moment of reckoning that it is ultimately the right thing to do, even if uh, that wasn't the mission. And even though Amanda Waller is giving them the orders in their comms to turn around, back up, leave it alone, leave the island, just let that big creature do whatever it will, she is very swiftly taken out by some golf course justice because her team, even though they work for her, uh, don't actually agree. Once they see the devastation, death, and destruction unfolding on the monitors in front of them, they have a crisis of conscience, and uh, Amanda Waller takes a nine iron to the temple, Uh, courtesy of uh, one of her team members, and and she goes down like a bag of rocks, and uh, therefore her finger is off the kill switch, and the control team encourages the the on-the-ground team to do whatever they need to do to save the people who are in danger.
0: Right, and so, I mean, that's about as much as we really need to discuss of the plot of the movie. Uh, Again, if you're listening to this, we hope you've watched it, and... uh, and, and appreciate it the way we do. Now, here's the kind of where I wanted to t- uh, take the discussion now. What separates this movie, uh, which is arguably... I mean, Jim and I have both exactly spoiled the plot. We love this movie. We do. We enjoyed every minute of it. It was fantastically rendered, lovingly cared for by James Gunn in a way that only James Gunn can do. Uh, what is it that sets this movie apart from the original Suicide Squad with David Iyer? Now, I'm going to say out front... I didn't mind the su- or the original Suicide Squad, Suicide Squad by David Iyer. I didn't mind it. It was okay. There were definite huge problems with that movie. Big Chief, of course, for me, is I did not appreciate Jared Leto as the Joker. I thought it was kind of ham-fisted and overdone and overwrought. And, and it had definite good moments. There were some definitely charming moments in the movie. But we didn't get this exploration of the characters. We didn't get to know uh, uh, Captain Boomerang's driving motivations. We didn't get to know much of anyone outside of Harley Quinn. We got a little bit with Deadshot, you know, with him and his kid, and that's about it. Uh, everyone else just kind of got short shrift. And They were sort of there. Except that their appearance on this team meant something and that there was a reason for it. Um, where most of the action focused on uh, Deadshot and Harley, which, again, yeah. Margot Robbie is amazing as Harley Quinn. I'm not going to take anything away from her with this, but they kind of saddled her with a lot of emotional baggage, which rightfully so. Um, Harley's a broken character. but they That's sn- sort of the defining characteristic her of with, her. Right, they synced her up with this really weird joker and tried to cram and shoehorn... You know a lot of backstory into this movie, and it just kind of it took over. It took center stage, and you know Enchantress. We didn't really get to know too much uh, as a villain, and uh, and, and it just kind of felt
1: rushed. And, and maybe it there's really an did. And then cut. we had maybe we had really not. And... We had some and yeah, and also we had some very ill-advised uh, character moments in Suicide Squad, such as. um, And this, again, I I did not, because I read the reviews and and didn't want to see a movie that everybody agreed was kind of garbage, uh, despite good moments, I didn't watch the original Suicide Squad until after I saw The Suicide Squad. I came home and the next night uh, we watched it, just because my my, my lady, who is a big fan of Harley Quinn, kind of wanted me to see it, to compare and contrast, and I hadn't seen it. So there were some really, really bad character choices, such as hey, where the fuck did that guy come from when we're getting ready to, to deploy and suddenly Slipknot rolls up? And I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Where did he come from? And it wound up being that his entire purpose as a character was to demonstrate, yes, we can and we'll kill you if you dis- disobey orders. His whole point was to right, be but we, we a cautionary tale. We weren't made to tale. care about this guy. No, we it, he just kind him. of showed up out of nowhere and then was killed a few minutes later. And the same thing with um, uh, with Katana. Uh, played by the wonderful Karen Fukuhara, who also plays the girl on The Boys. Um, And that is her character name. I'm not just being dismissive. She was the girl. Um, (laughs) Because there was... I'm not going to... You've seen... You've probably seen this, you know. But yeah, she showed up out of nowhere and Rick Flag was just like, oh yeah, she's going to kill you if you fuck around. And we aren't... She shows up out of nowhere. We aren't made to care about her. We know nothing about her. Just she's kind of like got a badass costume and she's really good with a sword and don't fuck with her. But I think... The reason why The Suicide Squad works better than Suicide Squad, um, has a lot to do with studio meddling. Now, David Ayer has, Ayer, uh, however you want to say it, I've only seen it in print, but you said Ayer, so I'll go with that. David Ayer has come out and demonstrated, hey, no hard feelings at all, I wish James Gunn and The Suicide Squad nothing but success and 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 all of the uh, goodwill in the world, um, because they really did kind of fuck this guy over. He has come out very, quite a few times and very publicly said, the movie that was presented to you was not the movie I shot. It's not the movie I intended to make. Um, it was a really bad mix of like, sort of like weirdly heavy moments of gravitas and sort of forced attempts at humor. And it just didn't work because it was a mishmash. It was a recut. The studio came in and had all these notes and all these ideas and they decided to go ahead and, and really just do a hatchet job on the film that I wanted to, the story I wanted to tell you. And... Right. That's been backed up by several other independent sources, saying, yeah, Warner Brothers kind of came in and fucked everything up. So one of the things that James Gunn made a point to kind of, if not put into his contract, that's kind of, I'm not really sure if that's the case, but made sure to assert, and he said this uh, after the movie was very well received, at least critically, I don't, I, the box office is still out, the jury's out on the numbers, but it was critically well received, and everybody seems to agree it's better than David Ayer's version. Uh, he said that that's because he insisted upon creative control, to tell the movie, to tell the story, to make the movie the way he wanted to do it, and it really seems as though insisting upon that creative control has resulted in in a, in a far superior film, based on the same characters, right. based on the same general concept, because yeah, we actually do care about these characters. We have wonderful moments of of sympathizing with Polka Dot Man and his and his his horrible family situation, of of sympathizing with Ratcatcher two and and the the bond she had with her dad, um. Bloodsport, and, and sort of where he comes from, we have these moments where we understand these characters a little better. And as such, we uh, we 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 are we, we care about... They're not just shoehorned in. We, we care about these people as people, and so we sort of care about the stakes a little more. We care about what happens to them. We care about whether they live or die, whether they succeed or fail. And that's something that was really missing in the Ayer film, when you have characters coming out of nowhere, dying almost immediately, characters showing up halfway through the film with no prior introduction, and just they're sort of a member of the team at that point. And it's also sort of made light of, um, in, in James Gunn's version when, uh, I don't remember the name of the bus driver, but, uh, a couple of times over the course of the film, I noticed that the the bus driver, the guy who was driving the Suicide Squad around through the favelas of Cordo Maltese as their sort of, like, local fixer, kind of wound up coming along with them into the Jotunheim Tower And, what was his name, Winston, was it something like that, I don't remember, but he he was meant to be forgettable, so um, you sort of see him hanging out on the periphery of the team, even though he's just the bus driver and doesn't have any abilities or powers, isn't really a member of the team, and then when he is inevitably killed because he's not a world-class fighter with superpowers, um, then Polka Dot Man sort of bemoans his loss. He, He looks out and sees his body on the ground and says, we lost the bus driver. Uh, and and it's, again, I, I feel like I'm sort of like tying into what James Gunn intended for the character because Harley doesn't even remember his name. Wait, we lost who? Who was that again? I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. He's been with us the whole time. He was a person. He had uh, thoughts, feelings, and a name. No, I would have remembered him. Oh, wait, the bus driver. Yeah, okay. I know who you're talking about now. And so we're <laughs> sort of made... I, I really think that was a very sly... Uh, Milton. Milton. His name was his name Milton. Was Milton. That was a sort of a sly, um, in my opinion, uh, narrative poke at, not David Ayer, because he and James Gunn seem to be getting along and had nothing but nice things to say about each other, but sort of a narrative poke at studio meddling of, hey, we're going to introduce this character, and when they die, we, 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 their death really does mean something, because they were a member of the team, and they, they were sort of just there, but we're going to lampshade, we're going to lean into the fact that these other characters in that other film just sort of came out of nowhere and showed up and, and were expected to care about them. This character is the same way, but we're going to, to, to show that these characters, the other characters on the screen that were with him, alongside him, did care about him. So little things right. like that were just really interesting for me to see and to think about and look back on after I watched Suicide Squad after The Suicide Squad so I could compare and contrast and, and see where the first film didn't really do what the second film did and how the second film, in, in a lot of subtle and not-so-subtle ways tried to correct the the sins and mistakes of the first movie.
0: And the cool thing was is uh, they introduced each of the characters uh, in the uh, ill-fated a team, uh, if you will, uh, Pete Davidson and Mongal and Za and Courtney and, all that. and yeah yeah they introduced all of them kind of in the same way that they introduced everyone on the B team. They gave them their own little moments, they gave them their own little motivations. We, we are given the idea that we're meant to care about these people and that we're going to explore these people uh, without really giving away the plot that they're going to fucking die, all of them. And so we get this little interaction with, uh, with what is Weasel. We get this interaction with Harley. Oh, I always wanted to work with a werewolf. Is he a werewolf? And then fucking Pete Davidson freaking out about having to sit next to a werewolf. And we get... All of these little tiny character interactions that indicate that they're going to explore further who these characters are without realizing, uh, no, we're not. Um, and, and it's kind of neat because they handle it all very similarly to the way we are introduced to Peacemaker, the way we're introduced to King Shark. Uh, they treat it the same way. And so we go in with this expectation that, oh, we're going to learn more about these people as we go. Ha just
1: kidding, fake out. They're all going to get destroyed within the first 15 minutes of the film
0: and also another thing i want to throw out i really love the fact that uh, after we learn who king shark is it's revealed that he might potentially be the offspring of an actual like water god basically an aqua god if you will uh which they've hinted at in the comics and and certainly in the uh Harley Quinn TV show, the Ron Funches version. Um, we He's only called King Shark, I think, like a couple of times. Other than that, they call him by his given name. They don't treat him like a
1: disposable character. No. He's, he's referred to as King Shark, but his name is Nanawe because he is a Polynesian um, demigod, essentially. Right.
0: And, I mean, he's not the smartest character. He's not the uh, most cunning character, I mean... But he's super endearing, he's a
1: bruiser with a heart of gold. I wear disguise. Oh, you're going
0: to wear a disguise.
1: See? Hey, he's learning Spanish.
0: And what kind of disguise?
1: Fake mustache.
0: They, they at one point try to uh, go in disguise and they, they ask him what kind of disguise he could possibly take that would disguise him from being the giant shark-like creature that he is. And he just goes fake mustache <laughs> and it's it's definitely played for comedy but you know you feel like he believes it you feel like he uh just is trying to contribute the best way that he knows how because it's revealed early on that i mean he's kind of a, an unknown quantity he tries at one point to eat a teammate uh rat catcher two and uh they have to lay out a for him he's like well, if I was your friend, would you try to eat your friend? And he's like, no. Well, then we're your friends, man. Don't eat us. I don't and have he friends. He takes that to heart. Yeah. That you he sort of go from, like, fearing becomes, this, this yeah. giant bruiser who
1: almost ate a teammate to sort of like, oh, he, th- he doesn't have any friends. This big, goofy, lovable, yes, incredibly dangerous, muscular, and with a, you know, 10-foot mouth lined with razor-sharp teeth who eats people, but you sort of sympathize with him. He's, he becomes a very sympathetic character because... He just really feels like he doesn't have any friends. He's just kind of there. He's an outcast. He's a you know, a, a big muscular brute to be used as a weapon. And then within seconds, they humanize a character that isn't even really human.
0: Right, and you end up pulling for the guy. I mean, and you've, you've seen him literally cramming people into his gullet. You see him at one point rip a guy viscerally in half. I mean, this is not a character that you would approach... No. In reality. And then the We Don't Eat Friends uh,
1: theme kind of comes back to haunt him later on when he almost gets eaten by some creatures he thinks are his friends. And if you've seen the movie, uh, then you know what that's about. And if you haven't seen the movie, then why in the fuck are you still listening? So that's a theme that actually (laughs) comes back uh, to to be something that that impacts his character. And I think it was a really touching thing to see.
0: Right. And so you end up pulling for this big dumb brute in a way that, that only James Gunn can really make you do. I mean, James Gunn's got a way of writing these characters in a way that Yes, they're horrible people. Yes, they've committed atrocity after atrocity. But you end up pulling for them regardless. You yeah. kind of want them to succeed. Nanawe slash that's the King key Shark. Component. Yeah,
1: he, he's kind of an analog in a way of Groot, in a way. Because he is the team member who's kind of monosyllabic, doesn't really say much, kind of a big bruiser, does kill people when called upon, but you love him anyway because he's just got a heart of gold. He he is the Groot character in this film. And again, I, I'm showing my, my ignorance of, of comics a little bit. I love comics, but some of them I'm just I, I I'm not as familiar with the history of some of these characters as I should be. But So I don't know if, if King Shark or uh, Groot came first on the page. But uh, they're definitely analogs of each other on different sides of the uh, the sort of DCEU and Marvel universes as, as they're presented on the screen in these contexts. So James Gunn knows how to right. handle that type of a character because Groot, even though he is shown to be very dangerous when the chips are down and when called upon to be the sort of muscle of the team on the Guardians of the Galaxy... He's still lovable as shit, and you pull for him. And when bad shit happens to him, it's like somebody's beating up a puppy. Even though he's, you know, a ten-foot-tall puppy that can kill you, uh, he's still a puppy in a lot of ways. And so that's kind of that that version of that character in this version of this film.
0: Right. And even when, uh, and as we've discussed, uh, Peacemaker takes his, his I don't want to say villainous turn, but his, his inevitable uh, triple-cross, double-cross, whatever it is, uh, you end up feeling just a bit betrayed. Just like, you know, you feel like Rick Flagg in that moment. You feel like Ratcatcher at that moment. Because you feel betrayed by this guy that you've started pulling for. Because him and, and Bloodsport throughout this entire movie have this dick measuring contest. <laughs> they do. Um, and mm, I've seen it. We've seen the Tidy Whiteys. It's a big contest. But uh, they have this almost like Gimli and... Uh, Legolas kind of thing, like from Lord of the Rings, where they're counting kills and counting style points and, and this, that, and the other thing. And and it's it's just fun. It makes it fun. It's that classic, and,
1: anything you can do, I can do better, sort of teammate rivalry.
0: Right. And so uh, we end up really, you know, again, pulling for these characters, wanting these characters to succeed, going up against something like Starro and trying to save the island inhabitants of Corta Maltese. And when and when he takes his his turn, we feel a bit betrayed by it.
1: Ah, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal!
0: And and and, and kind of justified when uh, he ends up uh, a, apparently biting it. And, and the whole time, we all know going into this movie that James Gunn has worked with John Cena to create a Peacemaker uh, spin-off television show for HBO Max. Yep. Uh, but the entire time, we don't know when in the continuity it happens. Is it a prequel? Is it a sequel? And I remember sitting there with my wife watching it and going, "Up, up, he's dead now. It must be a prequel. Who could recover then, from a mortal wound
1: like that? Well, stick around. John Cena!
0: Didn't see that coming.
1: Da, 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 da. But... <laughs>
0: But then we get to
1: the end credits, and it's like, oh, okay, sequel. Back to There's your sequel. post-credits. There's, there's, you're both sequel hook and post credit sequence. Turns out Peacemaker survived his seemingly mortal wounds, and uh, Peacemaker will rise again to ply his particular brand of misguided, jingoistic, anti-hero nonsense. Uh, but it will be entertaining to watch because, again, the character arc of this character and the sort of extremes of, of range that John Cena shows in his acting ability, um, he goes from... Make you care. Goofy and mockable to holy shit! This guy's yeah. actually dangerous and crazy and and uh, and I can't I you know I can't wait to see what they do with it on the small screen too because I understand that you know DC in a lot of ways, especially with the DCEU, has in, kind of had to play catch up to Marvel uh, because Marvel oh, yeah. has kind of dominated the movies a little bit and the the cinematic at least arm of the DCEU has been kind of confused despite standouts like Shazam and uh, the Suicide Squad and the first Wonder Woman movie. Um, the DCEU has not enjoyed these sort of unified... It's all connected. Anybody can show up at any time. It's all one overarching story that the MCU has had. Um, but they've done well on the small screen. Even though there's no continuity between, you know, different flashes. we got Supergirl over here. we got Arrow on the small screen. doesn't show up on the big screen. All that shit's kind of confusing. But DC has, has arguably done better up to a point on the small screen than Marvel has until Marvel really took over and started putting out stuff like Falcon and Winter Soldier and WandaVision and Loki. And they're sort of reestablishing that, hey... We're going to make the small screen stuff just as good and just as essential viewing and just as integral parts of the story as anything that happens at the Cineplex. Uh, but that took him a while. That took them stumbling through Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It took, took them stumbling through Agent Carter, which have since been retconned as being non-canon, and all of these sort of, like, enjoyable in spots, but overall not very satisfying uh, Netflix universe stuff with the Defenders. Um, now that Disney kind of has everything all back under the same umbrella... They're doing better, um, but I still think that uh, once we see what the DCEU does with the Peacemaker character um, on HBO Max, we're, we're going to see kind of a return to form a little bit, because it's just such a great character. There's so much they can do with it, and I'm so in love with John Cena as a performer and as a person that uh, I really, I think they'll do well with that. I think that'll be a good thing for the character, for the universe, and 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 also for everybody who watches it.
0: Right. And and anything with James Gunn's stamp of approval at this point, I'm kind of on board with because that man is amazing. He does such good work. Um, So, yeah, I think uh, the be all end all of the the differences between Suicide Squad and The Suicide Squad, David Ayer's version and James Gunn's version is we're presented with a lot of opportunities to root for these characters in a way that uh, Ayer's Suicide Squad just didn't give us. We're no. able to empathize and sympathize with uh, Ratcatcher, with with uh, Bloodsport, even uh, that moment when his daughter's just chewing him eight sides of asshole in in the prison because of what a shitty father he is.
1: No, fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you!
0: And and you know we're able to sympathize with people like Nanawe and and uh, uh, Peacemaker and. And Polka Dot Man especially were able to just... They, they found a way to visualize his mental anguish in a way that, yes, it made it funny, and yes, it, it stood out as as comedy, but it also very real kind of damage that was done to him. And, and Polka and Dot Man, who finally realizes his him. destiny
1: as a superhero, uh, milliseconds before he's squashed by a stray starfish tentacle from outer space, kind of reminded me... <laughs> That sort of, like, moment of, 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 of dawning self-sacrifice. <clears throat> Another one of my favorite movies of all time, and again, if you haven't seen it, um, what the fuck is wrong with you? But um, Brad Bird's <laughs> The Iron Giant, which is one of my favorite uh, films of all time. I, I You know, you can't see it, see it, but over my shoulder to my right, to your left, is a uh, 18-inch posable talking battery-operated Iron Giant, because I love that movie so much. I've seen those ones. Those are cool. Yeah, but there's that moment, and again, we warned you about spoilers for... Uh, Suicide Squad at the top of this episode, but we didn't warn you about spoilers for the Iron Giant, which is a film you must watch. If you do nothing else for me, watch that movie. So I'm going to say a little something about the end of that movie that I need you to fast-forward on your app 30 seconds. And starting now, hit that button and go. When Polka-Dot Man gets squashed by Starro's tentacle moments after realizing he finally is a superhero, because he did some good, it kind of reminded me of that moment when the Iron Giant flew towards the nuclear bomb over Massachusetts and kind of closed his eyes in anticipation of his own destruction and just Superman. You are who you choose to be. Superman. I cannot sit through that scene with a dry eye. Even now talking about it, I I get misty. So it reminded me of that. It reminded me of that moment and therefore I love it. Okay, hopefully that's about 30 seconds. Hopefully you skipped it like you would skip an ad if there's an ad. Not that we want to say that because we're hoping to get sponsors eventually, but you you feel me. Um, But yeah, that reminded me of that moment, and uh, it just made me really happy to see it. I don't know if it was intentional, but sort of those moments of of self-sacrifice, they're they're sort of universal amongst sympathetic characters, and so I loved it.
0: Absolutely, and like I said, I think that's the key difference, is we're given these opportunities to care about these characters. We're given the opportunity to... Sympathize with the the uh, motivations for these characters instead of just, oh here's a character, oh here's another character. Hey, remember Boomerang? Hey, remember this? It's here's like, a character that's going to show spectrum. up out of nowhere
1: and die within five minutes. Here's another character that's also going to show up out of nowhere you know nothing about, who just looks cool in a costume. Uh, James Gunn's hey, here's characters. Here's fucking
0: Killer Croc. Why do we give a shit?
1: Right. He's you know? he's James Gunn has always managed to and, and, and we should point out also we talked about this a little earlier, but I don't know if we really made the connection. James Gunn both wrote and directed this film. So he has an incredible yeah. vision when it comes to telling a story and then he has the ability to then take what's in his head ostensibly and arguably and translate it to the screen. So you've got that through line of creator and executor of a given piece of, of narrative art, I think it's safe to say that it's pretty close to what he wanted to, to portray And so right. he has this so ability will be
0: no director's cut
1: right no matter how execrable a character is no matter how much you look at them and go hey they've got some some qualities that are, are less than savory. Um, there's sort of an antihero there's sort of a, uh, a kind of a quirky weirdo who might be a little too violent or or whatever I mean I'm reminded of uh, polka dot man's um, issues with his childhood his childhood trauma uh, I'm reminded of uh, of Drax not understanding metaphor I'm sort of reminded of uh, Peter quill having a, a bit of an issue of, of not really knowing who his parents are and having that trauma of um, of Gamora also knowing who her her parents are to a degree well not really because she was adopted but being raised by Thanos, and then seeing like Bloodsport and and Deadshot both kind of having the same "Hey, don't fuck with my family" thing, he he infuses these characters with enough um, heart and enough backstory and enough humanity that you understand. Everybody can relate to some of the you know some of the shit these characters are going through. Y- you understand family issues. You understand childhood trauma. You understand trying to be a virtuous person in a world that kind of shows you into a corner sometimes and makes you do shit that you regret later. You understand all these things, and because you're given the opportunity to understand that these characters are going through some of the same struggles, and ostensibly eating the same shit sandwich, even if it's not exactly the same, you could still relate to them. And therefore, their actions, their sacrifices, their their motivations make sense. And it's just a more satisfying experience as an audience member, to be able to have that connection with the things you're seeing on screen, as opposed to, like you said, hey, here's a character, hey, there's a character, oh, look, that person's dead, oh, we're proving the point. That person's life up to that point, I mean, even though we don't really see it, um, Slipknot, ostensibly in the first movie, had a life. He had abilities, he probably had a family, he had things, that, you know, and he had as rich a life as any of us do, but he was introduced and killed within five minutes as a plot point. And we just didn't get that in this movie. Anybody who died, died. Uh, to establish a narrative theme. It was important to the story. It wasn't just, we're going to fucking kill this guy for the sick killing this guy. Even the entire A-team that got torn apart on the beach was to establish, hey, guess what? Anybody can die at any time and even though you've invested in a character, we may take them away from you at any moment. Um, and nobody's safe, so just stay on your toes and pay attention. Agreed.
0: And so, I mean... It's it's, like I said, it's no surprise to realize that Jim and I both really, really enjoyed this movie. If you have an opportunity to get out to the theaters safely, uh, please do. If you have HBO Max and you prefer to go that way in the comfort of your own home, absolutely do it. It's out for a few more weeks on HBO Max before they pull it. Uh, Definitely get an opportunity to check that out. Uh, Some of James Gunn's finest work, and I say that... Uh, knowing about Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, number three coming. I mean, knowing the kind of work... plus well, the Christmas special? ...that he puts into it. Oh, the Christmas special. <laughs> yeah. I
1: forgot all about that one. Which he has what also said uh, is, is not... Uh, yeah. He said that's not optional viewing, that's mandatory. So, you know, like anything else that Marvel does, it's it's mandatory viewing to understand the story. So, Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special, probably out by, by I think it's this Christmas. Might be next year, but we'll have to check on that and get back we'll to it. We'll
0: see, yeah. But definitely, I, if you have the opportunity to check this film out, I definitely think that you will enjoy it. I don't think it's time wasted. And I think you'll come away like Jim and I, just kind of appreciating these characters however long they have on screen and, and really just enjoying uh, this weird little universe, this quirky little thing that John, or, or this quirky little thing that uh, James Gunn has managed to put together. Uh, it's definitely one of the red-letter entries in the DCEU. Uh, I super enjoyed every minute of it. But we definitely want to know kind of what you thought of the whole thing. If you've seen The Suicide Squad and you've seen Suicide Squad, tell us your uh, compare and contrast stories. Tell us what you liked or didn't like. We kind of want to hear from you. Uh, In a way, you can do that. You can reach out to us on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Fuel Your Fandom. You can email us at Feel your at gmail.com.
1: Or you can email us at the backup address at FYF talentbooking at gmail.com. And as always, that is the address where you want to send your so suggestions, guest suggestions, especially if they're you and your pie recipes. And as always, the latest and greatest episodes are always up first at around 8 a.m. Pacific time on feel your com. And if you uh, are happy to wait until that platform syndicates your favorite podcast delivery service, you can also find us on Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher FM, and uh, Player FM, all the, uh, the fine uh, podcast indication platforms. And we do thank you for always finding us no matter where you find us.
0: Absolutely. And uh, keep in mind, we are almost ready. It's almost time to go 100% live with our new uh, charitable donations that we're doing, uh, which is the Fuel the Future program. Uh, things are moving into place. We've got that all going. Again, if you want to find us for that, you can hit us up on Venmo, which is at Fuel Your Fandom. You can hit us up on Cash App and PayPal as well. Both, uh, both platforms have us as Fuel Your Fandom.
1: Hey, help us create the next generation of fans by putting comics into the hands of underprivileged kids who might not have them otherwise.
0: Absolutely. We are all about bringing the future into nerd, and uh, that's kind of what we want to do. But we want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Fue Your Fandom Podcast. We got some big things on the horizon. Uh, Some wonderful guests coming for the the, uh, latter half of season three. So we're excited to uh, make those announcements here pretty soon. But from Jim and I both, we want to thank you for listening. And please do remember, we tell you every week that everything is fandom. And fandom is everything. Take care.